Hello, everybody, and welcome to Behind the Alps. Today, we're really lucky to have with us Peter Hartnett from Protolabs. Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, Gio. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So, Peter, just so that our listeners can can get to know you a little bit better, do you mind kind of giving a little bit of background on your education, you know, what interested you and kind of how you got into your current role at Protolabs? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think from, you know, age of about six on, I knew I was passionate about making things, about how things work, how the world worked. I think back to, you know, every birthday and holiday I had from, you know, age 10 on, where I was asking for remote control cars and robots and that sort of thing. And there's striking parallels to me as a, a 24-year-old engineer now. So yeah, born and raised in Minneapolis, went to school at Iowa State, um, studied industrial engineering, and then came to Protolabs. And Protolabs is a you know digital manufacturer. We do quick turn kind of everything, injection molding, sheet metal, 3D printing, and, and CNC for you know metal and plastics. I work on the injection molding side, which has been a pretty incredible uh, experience learning injection molding as a technology you know, in the ways it's revolutionized the world, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And actually, I guess I should mention, this is already the third time I think that someone is mentions that they're interested in model cars. So I definitely see a kind of a trend between, you know, learning how to use uh, model cars and then going on to becoming a strong engineer. So that's interesting. Yeah. And then, yes. Yeah, so when you joined Protolabs, do you mind sharing a little bit about, you know, what some of the first projects that you worked on were and, and what tools you were using through your work? So, you know, like any manufacturing engineer, you know, very often we have some tie to production, right? So Protolabs in my facility, we, we split the plant into four quarters, I guess, and I took one quarter of that. And so I'm responsible for stuff like the documentation and training of projects. The quarter I take is the last quarter. So after your parts are made, stuff like packaging, shipping, inspection is kind of all in my wheelhouse. I use all sorts of different tools. The simplest stuff is, you know, you're literally the Microsoft products to, to develop work instructions, understand processes. I do a lot of data analytics. And so I'm doing stuff with both Excel, you know, pivot tables, visual basic, stuff along those lines. But then some more fancy stuff as we're starting to do, you know, bigger data and smarter decision making. We use stuff like Python to run neural networks and machine learning stuff to try to understand how we can make smart business decisions. Yeah, that's awesome. And what was your experience like using some of these tools? Were they up to par with, you know, if you had something in mind that you wanted to build, a solution that you wanted to build? Was your experience with these tools that they were always up to par with what you needed them to do? Yeah, I think so much of finding a good solution is using the right tool and starting with the right tool. And I think knowing what the right tool is to solve your problem is something that takes some time, right? It's going to take a while to understand that Excel is the right direction to go for this answer versus Python versus something like Power BI or, or Domo. Yeah. And so I think that's a process that's iterative, right? Like you use the wrong tool and then come to some elegant solution in the right tool. And the next time you need to approach a similar problem, you you know you go back to those tools. So I think moral of the story is you learn by using the wrong tool first, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> At least that's, that's been my experience. I think there's, you know, so much power in so many of the tools that are available at, you know, just about every company. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a good point you bring up. I mean, it's not just about how you use a specific tool, but it's also choosing it in the first place. And I guess to choose it in the first place, you need to make the mistakes and understand, okay, which tools are the right tools for the job. But it sounds like most of the ways that you learned how to use these tools was through just doing. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, doing and and then ultimately failing, frankly, right? You don't know the limitations of a tool very often as a first time user. And you start to find them when you start running into them. Yeah. But I'm, you know, very hands-on and I, frankly, like being able to use the internet as a resource to try to learn these tools and try to find solutions to your problem is probably one of the biggest skills and, you know, the most important part of, of being an effective engineer, frankly, you know, very often I'm tasked with a problem where I have no idea how to approach it. 
I know a handful of tools. And so I'll start at those points and then, you know, really using the internet to leverage all those resources to try to, you know, build out my skill set without any support, you know, on site. Yeah. I know that actually in, in some interviews they use it nowadays and kind of leveraging the, the internet in a smart way is is really powerful. I mean, it's I read this funny thing the other day that said, okay, you, so you think you're not a technical person? Go Google something. Congratulations, you're now a technical person. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's quite interesting that, you know, with, you know, all the information that's available on the internet, it really is up to the task of the engineers to kind of, kind of go and make the most of it and leverage all the information that's available. Yeah, and and frankly, I think that's my value as an engineer is my ability to problem solve, right? Very few of the solutions I come to, I couldn't walk pretty much anyone through. But being able to approach a problem where I have no idea and having a process to find a solution that's, you know, effective is really where, you know, where my value as an employee comes to ProLabs. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So actually, what were some of these challenges and some of these problems that, that you were working on or that you are working on? You know, at ProLabs, we talk a lot about this digital thread. ProLabs is a very digital manufacturer. So you will go to portalabs.com. You're going to upload a CAD model of your part. You're not going to upload prints. We're not a traditional job shop in that way. And that digital thread is going to follow you through your whole ordering process. So, you know, on our customer facing side, you're going to see a, you know, a 3D viewer of your part and you're going to get a design for, for manufacturability review. That's all going to come through that digital portal. You're going to create your order online. You, you may not interface with a person at all. You know, our objective is always to try to keep that digital thread going. And I think where Tulip fits into that for Labs is that last, you know, in, in the shipping world, they talk about last mile delivery, the truck that takes it from the distribution center to your house. And in this case, we're using Tulip as that last step to go from our MES to the floor, right? So our floor operators, a lot of them don't actually interface with our internal computer systems with that digital thread directly, but they do it through Tulip. And so I think that's been the super, super elegant place to use Tulip because it's, you know, A, very easy to make iterable apps that are simple you know, makes them easier to train out and they're custom exactly to what we need. So we don't need to bring someone in and teach them this whole MES or teach them Microsoft AX or teach them any of these systems. We can just give them an app that gives them the buttons they need to do their job. Yeah. And then they're presented with the information that they need. And so what was being used actually before you built out these solutions? So a lot of that last mile was primarily paper tracking, right? So they would print out this job sheet and walk it over to the press and they had a whiteboard and they would write down 15 different attributes out of the order. And that would be that last mile of communication. When they had scrapped, they would write it down on a piece of paper. I think that's what you're going to find in a lot of manufacturing shops. And I think based on the the level of integration that the company has, you may see that go beyond that last mile. You know, you may have job travelers that are running a whole order. And so ProLabs got to the point where that digital thread got sort of one step from the floor, but that's where it stopped. And so that that's, you know, where Tulip has fit into the problems that ProLabs is trying to solve. Yeah, I remember seeing the evolution of the app. So it's it's interesting to hear it all the way from the start. And how are these changes kind of received in the shop floor? And what's been the experience of, of deploying these solutions to the manufacturing? So I think it's been a big a big learning experience for me as an engineer. The big takeaway I've had is that it's really important to come with value when you come with a change. So it's sort of give them something sweet and then, you know, hide vegetables behind that or something like that, you know, like we're trying to get a kid to eat their veggies. I think it's the same deal. So I think when we first rolled out Tulip, we had some difficulties with kind of initial engagement. And the root cause of that is we were doing the same thing that they were already doing. We were just doing it in a new way. And so that took additional work and they didn't see a lot of additional value. Obviously, you know, in the back end, we now had access to all this data, which is hugely valuable for us as decision makers. The big thing that drove widespread adoption on the floor and, you know, really making that an easy ask was providing that additional value. And so we've, you know, built out tools that are really, really high value and, you know, it's made adoption drastically easier. We started 
with about a quarter of the facility I work in. We've now rolled out to that whole facility and we've rolled out to a second facility. The advantage of that second facility is they're getting all of those really high value ads on day one. And we found that adoption to be drastically easier because it makes their life easier to be using the Tulip app. And it makes it a little bit easier for them to to swallow the pill of having to change the way they work. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you with having, you know, a true value proposition. When you make a change, people don't like change in the first place. So it really needs to make their life simpler and needs to have a positive aspect that makes them want to embark on this change. So I think it's, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on having a good value proposition. You mentioned you have advantages, one being the simplicity, the visibility, and then the data that you collect. Do you mind kind of building a little bit on those and kind of having this extra visibility, what it's enabled for you? So we have a lot of these tools built in within our MES. We can see what orders were created. We pipe that data, you know, previously into Power BI. And now we use Domo as our business insight tools, like, like any company would have. But that lacked a lot of the granularity that Tulip provides for us. And so, for example, we have a KPI every day. That's the number of parts we've made every day. And that's something that we track on a daily basis just to understand how well we're doing. But there's some real limitations to that. Like, we don't know when the parts were made. So we could have had a part in order for 100,000 parts that just happened to complete yesterday, even though it took two weeks to make those 100,000 parts. Mm. Subsequently, it looks like we did way better yesterday than we did because that whole order was getting lumped onto a given day. And the same thing goes for stuff like scrap, right? Like scrap was getting lumped into these buckets that would just get dropped on the order, but we didn't understand when during the run that scrap was happening. So Tulips enabled us to do stuff like get exactly how many parts were created yesterday. Yeah. You know, in a 24-hour window, we can see exactly how we did. And so it's way more granular data and far more useful to understand how the floor ran. But the second part of that is that investigation side, right? So you give me an order that we we know we use too much material and I can tell you what kind of scrap types we had, when they happened, was it a bunch of scrap at one time or did it spread out over the course of the run? Yeah. Who was entering that scrap? Did it have to move between presses? And a lot of insight. And that, that was all stuff that we sort of lacked when that last mile of the digital thread was all paper. Yeah, right. I was going to say, I mean, you know, getting that information from a piece of paper somewhere in the facility into somewhere that you can use, build a pivot table, build some analysis, build something of value with it. It's, it, you know, it can be done, but it just sounds like it's a lot of steps versus having it all available from anywhere in the world with Tulip. Well, yeah. And so the other reality is it's tedious, right? So we had a paper tracking system for scrap. When we looked at the data and compared that to our material consumption, uh, you know, the source of truth, we found we were tracking something like 30% of the scrap we were actually having on the floor. That's pretty bad, you know, really not very good. We yeah. roll out Tulip, it has the same functionality, it's got the same scrap options, and we're seeing 80 to 90% of that scrap with visibility. So that's the other part of it, right? Like we can build automated tools that, you know, for example, when they start an order, it assumes all their parts are startup scrap as they're processing the mold in. They have to toggle that off. And so as opposed to them having to manually enter these 50 parts of scrap, it just does it. That's driven us having way better visibility to, to what's actually happening, what material we're actually consuming. Yeah, right. I was going to ask, I mean, is that, are these changes in scrap, do you think there's actually a, like a process change that was performed or was it actually just increased visibility that allowed you to see this new scrap? So it's a number of different things. I think visibility is a huge part of it, right? So we can look back at an order where we know we use too much material and we can understand um, what scrap types there were there, or we can understand if there wasn't any scrap recorded. And that's, you know, that's an opportunity for for someone to be retrained, right? Yeah. And we get that, you know, feedback on a daily basis, right? So we generate these reports on a daily basis that are going to supervisors saying, hey, these are the the 20 runs that we struggled with yesterday. What happened here? And we provide the insight that we have from Tulip. And then we expect them to provide insight you know, from being on the floor. 
And so that's, you know, it's driven us following our process better, I guess is the moral of the story. Yeah. The, the paper process worked, but it might be two weeks before they were entered into this Excel sheet manually. And then by that point, nobody remembers that job running. Yeah. So I, I think it's a number of things. I think the other, like I said, the other part of it is the automation we've done to make it really easy for them, right? Like we, we try to record stuff. We assume stuff is scrap at the beginning of a run. And, and frankly, if they overrun the end of a run, we assume that's scrap as well. And those are our two biggest scrap types. So yeah, it's a number of different things. Yeah. And like you were saying earlier, I mean, it's if there's the value that all this information is being recorded automatically without having to do extra processes, it's easier to get adoption. Mm-hmm. When you were describing that, it kind of seems like it was going across quite a wide breadth of teams and different functions within your organization. Do you mind kind of describing how you've experienced this, you know, working with supervisors all the way to the end of the value stream? Yeah, there's been a lot of learning there too. I think there's a couple of things to consider, right? The way you should always look at this sort of problem is like, what is the end outcome that you want? And that's going to differ based on who the customer is. And by customer, I mean the employee using Tulip. And so I think that is something that, that we've had to iterate on for sure. You know, it's going to supervisors and saying, okay, what are the, the key metrics for you that help you understand how the floor is doing, who needs help, where you should be focusing your attention. And very often those, those asks can be fulfilled with stuff like analytics on a dashboard as opposed to apps. But then you go, you know, talk to one of our process techs that actually gets these molds running well. And they want information about the press. They want information about last runs. What were the, the attributes the press was set at at that point? you know, far more technical than someone like a a finishing operator that really needs, you know, how long is this job going to run? How many parts do I need to make? How many parts have I made? And and my scrap buttons, essentially. So I think it's been, you know, an iterative process. And that's where we rely on feedback from our people. Thankfully, Mm -hmm. ProLabs has, you know, tons of very good people that give us that feedback when it's not doing what they want. And so the tricky thing is making that integration between those different levels of functionality pretty seamless. And I think we've done a, a decent job at that. So yeah. stuff like developing a, a standard UI across all of our apps. So if I walk up to a press and it's showing information that only a supervisor would be using, it's easy for me to get back to where I need to be as a finishing operator. It's it's familiar. Even if I don't recognize the screens I'm seeing, I, I can still get myself home essentially. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I know there's a lot of moving parts, but it really seems like the solutions that you built were really very well tailored depending on the end user. I imagine for you, it's good experience to kind of get to work with different teams across the organization. Yeah, yeah. I think the reality is people won't use tools that are bad. And so if you make a key metric, them using them, you're going to drive yourself to a solution that works, even if it takes multiple revisions, right? So I think that me as an engineer is something I'm always looking for, right? Inherently, if it's a good tool, they'll probably use it. And if it's a bad tool, they probably won't. And so it's where the rubber meets the road, where you find out if this is actually doing what, what we need to do. That's awesome. Yeah, I agree. Can you describe a little bit what your experience has been in terms of opportunities that have opened up themselves to you as you became a better app builder and you learned these new technologies? What new opportunities presented themselves to you? Yeah, I think Tulip is a really good gateway to go into a lot of different worlds and a lot of different technical worlds, I guess I'm speaking to. So like we had some functionality that isn't super natively supported with Tulip because it's very specific to what Labs needed. And so in talking with live chat and talking with some of the other solution folks over at Tulip, you guys directed us towards your APIs, which are, you know, this programming interface primarily used by software developers, but are really pretty user-friendly, right? Like me as someone with a little bit of programming background could work myself through the problem solving to hit your API. And, you know, fast forward nine months and now we're doing crazy stuff with API and it's enabled us to do super, super wild stuff. And that, like I said, Tulip was this gateway to get into that world, right? You flip that switch and you go down this avenue of a new tool you can use. 
and the tulip universe expands as far as the functionality it can have. Yeah. So I think I think that's probably the biggest one. I think I would tell you that I don't think there's a whole lot you can't do with Tulip if you know some of these supporting tools that help Tulip build out very unique functionality, right? And so I think that's the biggest one where it's a couple of things. One, I, I think Tulip really teaches you how to work with users because it's so floor-facing, so user-facing. And so it's, you know, really built out my process for working and supporting, you know, potentially two or 300 different customers on the same app. But also just the pure technical, like expanding the boundaries of, you know, kind of my technical skill set and the stuff I'm working with every day and the stuff I'm comfortable with. Yeah, that's awesome. With these new skills that you've been learning and, you know, these past months deploying it, have you had, you know, someone tap on your shoulder, say, oh, hey, there's this problem that we're facing or there's this solution that we're trying to build over here. Do you think you could help us out? Yeah, absolutely. The value of Tulip is that it's simple enough that with a 30 second conversation, I can tell you whether Tulip's the right tool to be using for it. You know, frankly, Protolabs is a software company. That digital thread is being powered by 100 plus software developers. And so we have the resources to do it the old fashioned way, right? Choosing to do it with Tulip is a strategic choice. And so subsequently, that's a discussion we have all the time, right? Should we make this a software request, except it's going to take six months, but give ourselves some flexibility and like the pros and cons that come to doing it that way? Or do we do it with Tulip, right? And like I said, the, the big advantage is, you know, we can spend a 30-minute meeting and once I understand what the requirements are and what you're trying to do, it's pretty easy to tell whether Tulip is the right avenue. Obviously, you know, there are applications where Tulip isn't the right avenue and, and I'll be honest about those yeah. too. But it, frankly, in most cases, especially the stuff that's floor-facing, it's a great tool to get the stuff done and, and frankly, get it done, you know, drastically faster than, than we could with, you know, traditional software methods. Yeah, yeah. It goes back to what you were saying earlier about choosing the right tool. And I, and I agree that it's, it's a really important thing to do. Yeah, you won't be successful with the wrong tool and you won't find out you're not going to be successful until you're at the end, until you run into that, that limitation, you know? Yeah, 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 for sure. And, and the best way to learn it is by doing it. And like you were saying earlier, you know, kind of learning from the mistakes that are made. Yeah, absolutely. And the reality is you end up with technical debt in traditional software. You end up with technical debt in Tulip too, right? Where you end up with this app that, you know, in retrospect, I wish I had done something, you know, a different way, but going back and doing that again, the right way is, is a bit of a challenge. You know, all Tulip development is incredibly fast. And so I think fixing those sort of things also is relatively fast. Yeah. We run into that all the time too, frankly, right? It's like, I wish I had structured it this way because now I understand something different about how Tulip wants you to, you know, set up your data or whatever. Yeah, yeah. At the start, especially, you need to have a certain level of comfort with the tool to say, okay, it's fine. We did it the first time. We took some learnings and this is how we want to do it the second time. It definitely, you know, you, you need to have some confidence in your abilities to say, okay, you know what? Scratch everything we did before. Let's go and take it and do it again and change how we do it. It's definitely the best way to develop app and, and software, you know, just kind of like let's take our learnings and improve it. But it definitely takes confidence in one's own abilities to be able to go in and kind of scratch everything that was done before to improve upon a solution. Yeah, like I said, the life cycle to actually do development in Tulip is so much faster than it is in the traditional software world that it's a lot easier to make that determination that it makes sense to go back and, you know, frankly, start from the ground up or start close to the ground up, rebuilding an app to do it, you know, in a slightly different way. I guess my other thought on that is the cases where we've run into the limitations of Tulip are cases where we're trying to do weird things, right? Where we're trying to, you know, load 30 machines in one app or we're trying to do some weird interface with a different system. And so, Frankly, it's like that technical debt where we did it wrong a year ago when we didn't know what we were doing. And if we did it again now, we would do it right. Yeah, It's an iterative process, right? I think primarily my role at Protolabs now when it comes to Tulip is being an advisor for you know sort of stage one. Let's make sure we don't set up the data in a weird way that's going to cause issues for us. Trying to understand what are we going to run into in three months that short of understanding Tulip well, you won't know, 
But like you say, I mean, the tools that you have under your belt and the experiences that you have allow you to be able to make those determinations on like, okay, is this something that we need to build from the ground up or is this something that we can improve upon or kind of where do we draw the line? So I think it's it's definitely something that is quick to pick up, but it's also highly advantageous to have experience building these solutions. Yeah, the reality is it's just an order of magnitude faster. You know, yeah. like it's got the same caveats that come with any software development. There's risk with making changes and there's, you know, all sorts of things that come with it but it's just way faster. You know, yeah. we, we can make a change in an hour and there's the same risk that if software made that change in a week, but we can make another change in the next hour if we had some issue, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. If you were to make a recommendation, you know, to someone who's starting to enter the workforce and operations or in manufacturing, what would you recommend to them in terms of learning new technologies, of adopting new and kind of staying with the trend with new, new technologies that are coming out? I'm a firm believer in a couple of things. One, failing as fast as you can, right? Like let's fail cheap, let's fail fast. Version two or the next version will be great. You know, like I think that is critical. And I think that's where Tulip is super useful. You can build out an app that does something, go to the floor. They say, this is not what I want and make V2 the next day. I think that's incredibly important. I think the reality is every job has problems that you're trying to solve, tools you're going to solve them with and customers that are going to accept or decline that solution inside and outside of the technical world. I think that that just exists. And I think Tulip is a super nice avenue in a lot of worlds to do that. You know, Even if it's just that first level of validation, building out an app that works like an app to walk someone through it and try to understand if that flow is right. But yeah, on a larger scale than just Tulip, figure out the tools that might not be the most efficient, but enable you to fail quickly. Right. So I, I do a lot of programming in Python, which is not a hugely efficient language. You talk to a software developer and they would never use it in most cases on like a production solution. But I can guarantee you I can write two hours of code and I'm not going to have a bug in it the first time I run it because it's a very intuitive thing to write and I can build out something very powerful very quickly. And so, yeah, that's the big recommendation I would have for myself five years ago. Um, and anyone else, you know, especially in the problem solving technical world is find the tools that allow you to come to solutions really quickly because the reality is the solution you think you need at the beginning might not be the solution that, that you need in the long run. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, I think it's, both with one, choosing the right tool from the, the outset, but then number two, failing fast. It's critical, you know, to kind of be able to kind of, okay, say oh, we did something, it was good or it wasn't good. These are learnings we took and go out and make an improvement. I think it's critical to embody that mindset, that continuous improvement mindset. But it's also interesting hearing you talk because you definitely also have a way of thinking about problems. And it's not only like, okay, about building the solution, but it ultimately needs to be adopted by the customer. You know, there's an end user who clocks into work in the morning and then starts using a tool that you built. And it's critical to build a solution that they're happy to work with. And I guess a feedback loop in which they're comfortable to give you feedback, say, oh, you know what, how about we change this? How about we change this? And then if they start seeing those changes implemented, it makes the whole development that much better and quicker and, and more pleasant for everyone. Well, it's, it's empowering, right? The big issue with many manufacturing facilities is that there's a disconnect between the floor and the people that can actually make changes. And so a traditional software request for us, you might put it in, in in March and you might not see it until July. And in that time, you've felt like you weren't heard, right? You felt like nothing is happening. You felt like this problem isn't being fixed. I think bringing the people that can solve the problem, i.e. in Tulip's case, manufacturing engineers, as close to the customer as possible and making that loop as fast as possible is huge, right? So, you know, we had a request last week from this facility we're rolling out to to add a couple different scrap types. And we're working on that change right now. They should have a version by the end of the day. So they're going to see this change made that they requested last week. And the next time they have some idea, they're going to speak up. Yeah. And that's huge, you know, especially in U.S. manufacturing, like 
we've got to be smart about our business. And the people that know the business best are the people that are doing the thing, right? So I think two things. One, I think being able to develop fast and, and act on their request quickly is hugely important. Also, just you know, limiting the distance from the people fixing the problem and the people that have the problem. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you touched upon this, but you know, the, the next time that they see an improvement or that there's something they want to suggest, it's that much more empowering. Like, okay, you know, I submitted a, a suggestion. It didn't just go into the void for six months. It was kind of addressed right away. So it definitely encourages more of this, of these feedback loops. Yeah, absolutely. That's the single biggest thing we found as far as getting people to request things is acting on when they do request them. People will ask for something once. And then if they don't hear back, they won't ask again for that thing. And they might not ask for whatever the other thing is because they yeah. feel like they're wasting their time or they're, the feedback I get from the floor is they feel like they're being a complainer yeah. if they keep complaining about some issue that they're having. And my feedback to them is like, make it painful for me <laughs> if it's painful for you, you know? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. keep reminding me, keep keep poking me if you're fighting with this thing. Like my job is to take those pain points and remove them as much as I can. And sometimes yeah. they come back and say, I just don't have a good solution for this. It's just painful because it has to be. But that feedback is enough feedback that, frankly, they come when they have another issue that comes up, you know? Yeah. So. Thanks for, for walking through that, because I think it's it's a really important point when building solutions with Tulip. And kind of, you know, thinking a little bit about the future of manufacturing, whether it's here in the U.S. or internationally, what is it that excites you about new technologies or new trends that you see coming up? I am a fanatic for all these, like, Internet of Things, fourth industrial revolution connected devices stuff. I think that's the avenue, like, that's the untapped potential. It's something that ProLabs is just kind of getting into. So we've you know, been monitoring all of our injection molding presses for about a year. But we've got a ton of other things in this facility that cost money to be powered and that could be monitored and could be run more efficiently. Stuff like we've got you know, about 100 horsepower worth of air compressors. That'd be great if we had Tulip trying to understand if there's opportunities for us to run those more efficiently. Stuff like, you know, frankly, the lights in the office. Like, why are those on all night when nobody's here? That's something we could be monitoring with Tulip, understand if we can be more efficient. But there's a ton of other opportunities that are significantly larger. Our presses are all electric. And so is there an opportunity that, you know, if a press hasn't run for a number of hours, could we trigger the floor to, to do something to limit the power utilization of that press? I think like U.S. manufacturing, the ones that, that have made it, that the ones that are still successful, have done a lot of the easy wins and a lot of the big wins and a lot of the things that come to mind when you think about saving money. But there's so much opportunity if you can just start monitoring things and start building smart solutions into your process. I think the reality is manufacturing, you do so much of the same thing that even a small change to efficiency makes a huge difference in the bottom line. You know, the first step of that is just making these devices connected in a way that's intuitive, a, a way that's scalable, a way that is an additional load on your your internet network. And all those questions are certainly ones that we're working through at Protolabs right now, frankly. Like, how do we connect these devices that are not smart in any way? Yeah. In a way that's intuitive, in a way that's flexible, in a way that I don't have to go manually push code to several hundred devices. Frankly, I think it's something that Tulip is still working through on your end, right? I think like the Edge MC and the, the Gateway IO are both big steps in that direction, really, really lowering the barrier to entry to do that sort of thing, machine monitoring on stuff that isn't internet connected. Yeah. But I think the world has a long way to go still to have a great solution for that. So that's the big thing that excites me is like this void of opportunity to just start monitoring everything, right? Start being yeah. smart about everything, not just about material, not just about scrap parts, about, you know, the lights in the bathroom. There's opportunity everywhere. I agree. And I mean, I think it's also important to kind of frame the situation is not only like monitor, like it's important to set a baseline and kind of start collecting information, but also have an end goal, you know, like, okay, the lights in the bathrooms, turn them off to save electricity or the 100 horsepower uh, compressor to run it more efficiently, kind of, you know, have the objective of improvement at the forefront is so critical. 
Yeah, yeah. It's like the reality is you don't know what you don't know, right? If we don't have data here, we don't know if we're running it poorly. And so me as a problem solver, I just want data for everything. I don't know what's going to be a small win or a big win until I can understand how poorly we're doing it, you know? Yeah. And so I think Tulip really, really lowers the bar as far as what it takes to even do that initial investigation on where you guys should be focusing your energy. Yeah, those are really, really good points. I'm really looking forward to seeing the solutions that you build when some of these technologies make it out into your hands and you're able to monitor compressors. I'm looking forward to seeing the improvements that you can make. There's so much opportunity. I think yeah. that's the, the reality. You know, there's diminishing returns as you go towards smaller and smaller fish. But, you know, certainly at Protolabs, there's a, there's a lot of opportunity. And I think you would find at least that much, if not more, in every manufacturing plant in the world. Yeah. And like you say, I mean, with manufacturing facilities that are in use oftentimes 24-7, the smallest little marginal improvement actually over time ends up in a, in a pretty consistent improvement for overall. Well, and it's like the other reality is the ROI case is really easy when the hardware it takes to monitor this device is, you know, Edge MC, you're coming in at about 200 bucks and the gateway, you're coming in under a thousand bucks. Like you don't need to save that much power every day. If you're running 24, seven, seven days a week, like your ROI case is going to be really good. You know, it makes my life really easy to be able to throw this on a device and understand if we can do that more efficiently. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And like I said, I'm really looking forward to seeing some of these solutions that you, you build out. Yeah, me but, too, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious where it's going to go, but my mind gets excited thinking about it. Yeah, there's there's so much opportunity that it's untapped. Well, Peter, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, honestly. It's been really interesting hearing more about you, getting to, to know you better, understanding how you kind of frame problems and how you build solutions. And I think you embody a really good mindset to be a, a successful tulip builder. So it's it's been awesome to see all the cool things that you've built, and we're looking forward to seeing all the things that you will build. I appreciate the time and I, I appreciate the tulip exists, right? It, may, it makes my life easier. It's like exactly the kind of tool that I want to be using. So yeah, I, I appreciate the time. I appreciate the opportunity to kind of spout some thoughts on, on my philosophy as an engineer. Yeah. I think a lot of people will learn a lot from this. So, so thanks again for sharing them. Thanks for joining us today. And we'll see you next time. Right on. Thank you. Behind the Ops is brought to you by Tulip. Connect the people, machines, devices, and systems used in your production and logistics processes with our revolutionary no-code frontline operations platform. Visit tulip.co to learn more. This show is produced by myself, Giovanni Carrara, and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at giovanni at tulip.co. Thank you for listening to Behind the Ops. We'll see you next time.